Hello and welcome to Under the Skin. My name's Russell Brand, I host it. This week I spoke to Darren Brown. We spoke about stoicism, the psychology of social political standpoints, faith healing, how we frame suffering, relationships, theology, and also at the end of the episode there's a rather lovely story about a parrot. We also talked about consumerism, we talked about Darren's career as an illusionist. He's a bit of a kind of anti-magician, anti-illusionist, not a hypnotist, isn't he? But he is also does shows that feel adjacent to those things, always underwritten by a kind of deconstructionalist sort of standpoint. He's a fascinating, thoughtful, gentle, bright, kind man. I like him very much and I think this was a I've watched a lot of his interviews and things and I think this is a good one. Darren's new live show, Showman, will be on tour in the UK from March 27, 2020. You can book tickets from April the 25th from DarrenBrown.co.uk. Thanks for all your comments on last week's podcast with David Runciman. Here are some of those comments, just so you know I don't make stuff up about there being comments. L. Hodgetts go, The professor's deep timbre voice seems to... Oh, no, deep timber. Yeah, deep timber voice seems to have mesmerised you, Rusty. Is the calmest, slowest, and most willing to allow silent pauses in all the podcasts you've made. Very interesting content. I enjoyed him very much. He was good, wasn't he? Yeah, he was very good. He was insightful. I mean, that's a Cambridge professor right there. That's not just someone we've dragged in off the street from beneath a bench. He was claiming he's fixing the bench. No, no, no. It's an actual academic. Susan Azim Boyer. This episode was brilliant. Rusty Rockets will usher in the mini-democracy utopia after the robots take over. Look, don't worry about these robots. I hear a lot of this with the robots. I don't think that's going to happen. All right? Oh, good. That's fine then. Because guess who does? Elon Musk. And he knows more about Well, still don't worry. I don't know why I have this faith in human beings and divinity. I don't know why it is. I don't know why I feel that we are somehow connected to nature and one another limitlessly and infinitely in our perception of time and matter are not if not illusory somehow holographic temporal contextual and not total and absolute or objective meaning i reckon we can manipulate reality through our consciousness if that only means by imagining new realms then bringing them into being so just keep calm all right mo kazango mind blown watched it from beginning to end so on youtube where you can watch things and use the lovely 10-second rewind forward feature YouTube has added recently. And not once did I use the forward skip feature. Strictly rewind and listen again closely. I go tap, tap when I'm watching YouTube. Tap, tap, tap. 20, 30, 40, 60. Oh, no. Little yellow line advert. Little yellow line advert. <laughs> dum, dum, dum. I always go, what do you get adverts? Well, I get like computer game things like for little battles. Sometimes... Uh, I don't know. What does it tell me about me? Some weird stuff. I think well, YouTube they know as me better than I know myself. I googled something, and then YouTube goes, "Hey, you seem like you might want this." Um. Okay. So uh, listen. So this is the podcast about um Darren Brown. Remember, a couple of days we go over to Luminary. If you're in the US, go to the uh luminary dot link forward slash russell sign up for that special three months of free if you're a brit or living in the uk is it all republic of ireland don't tell me that the irish are getting shafted i love the irish go to russellbrand.com get on the mailing list and you'll get three months for free there 
currently Luminary ain't launched in like loads of other territories. So, oh man, I hope it launches soon because otherwise that's goodbye to a lot of international listeners, eh? But we love you and we want you to get on that list and you're, you're pirates and hackers and stuff, right? You'll find ways, surely. Of course they will, aren't they? Will they, Jen? People know how to use the internet these days. Right, so I'm in Los Angeles. I'm going to be doing some live shows. The next one is this Wednesday, 24th of April. Keep an eye on my social... Yeah, Wednesday, 24th of April, at a place called Wanderlust. Is that where it is? Yeah, keep an eye on russellbrand.com and my social media posts for tickets. Pretty cheap prices. It's recovery live, so it's like doing this podcast, but live. Well, it's not like this podcast because there's not a guest and I'm not listening. I'm talking, very much talking. Um, But it is like my book, Recovery, or my book, Mentors. Mentors is out in the US. If you want to get it, you can get it off Amazon, or you could buy it from a local bookshop that pays its taxes. Or you could, uh, well, you know, you're in the world. You know what to do. Um... Also, check out Rebirth on Netflix. What a good time to watch it. Easter, Rebirth, the Lord rises. Um, and uh, if you want to get in touch with me on social media, it's at Rusty Rockets, hashtag under the skin, Instagram, at True Russell Brand. Or just tag me in your Insta stories. You know, just tag me in them. Tag me in them. Right, let's, uh, let's listen to Darren now. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that's, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? Welcome to Russell Brand. Under the skin. Darren Brown, thanks for coming on Under the Skin. I've wanted to talk to you in this format for a long while. Well, this is such a treat. This is such a treat. Thank you very, very much for uh, asking me. It's lovely to have you. The thing I'm most interested in when I think of umbrellaing a conversation with uh, with you is have any of your experiences from your sceptical perspective led you to query your own certainty because you've famously made a journey from a quite an orthodox and religious upbringing to being an outspoken atheist but now that you've worked continually in the area of uh i would say sort of you know manipulation of consciousness and the various hypnotic techniques and the wonderful shows that you've done what things have you encountered that have made you question your certainty well, that's a big one to start off with. Um, <laughs> that was the journey. Was, yeah, <laughs> the journey was also nice. Nice um, weather today. Last time I saw you, just before I answered that question, yeah, I yeah, had... Yeah. Um, You're the hypnotist. I You'll would, decide how this goes. I will decide exactly <laughs> how this goes. No, you, you came round to my house and... I loved um, it there. Thank you. And loved having you there. And uh, I was... My partner at the time was there and his mother, who was at the time terminally ill, no longer with us, sadly, but uh, she, you came in and... She was sat down and clearly unwell, and you were so amazing. You, you, um, she. I think she must have said, "Like I'm not well." And you, you kind of, you pretty much sat like knelt down next to her, and you were so focused and so um, present with her. And I don't know what you said because you you were having a private conversation with her, but it was sort of the opposite of what any of us would do, which is probably naturally feel a little ooh, uh, awkward or self conscious in that situation. And it was amazing. Always uh, stay with me. You're a very, uh, you're a very lovely. Man, oh, so thank thanks, you for that. Because I never got to say to you that was that was amazing. Years ago, you could have sent me a text. I could have. Well, I've texted you many times. You haven't replied. So. <laughs> <laughs> Unless there's direct praise a... <laughs> for a messianic moment of I interaction. I with one hand. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I see how you operate. <laughs> like, um, but so like, sorry. Uh, yeah. No, I'm glad you told me that story because 
the fact that I don't remember stuff like that directly, I've, I do recall the occasion now, uh, it suggests to me that I'm as, not as narcissistic as I imagine exactly, myself to be. Yeah. Otherwise, I'd be able to recall those <laughs> yeah, kind yeah, of tell moments. Me exactly what you said. <laughs> but like, um, but I tell you, but I do remember the, the yeah. that configuration of people in that event. Um, what I, I, when you say that to me, it makes me feel like I, I often feel more comfortable when when people talk to me on the level of. This is who I am. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. like I, I struggle more when you're on the sort of like the sort of the gentle negotiation yeah. of you know we're apes and we could fucking kill each other at any moment. So let's just gently <laughs> talk about the weather and then see if we can keep it's this true, in manageable. It? It's so true because I, I like I, I always think of myself as one of those people that's you know hopeless at parties and I think oh I'm just I'm just shy and so on. But actually, I think. I think probably most people like me like that. You, it's not that you don't want to talk to people. You do want to talk to people. You want to have like a, a proper conversation. And what gets in the way of that are all the millions of reasons why that's sort of not always uh, appropriate. I was at a party the other day and um, I met uh, a guy uh, called Liam Allen who's been in the paper recently because he had a lot of um, false rape accusations made against him and he's now started, he's only 23 or something and he started a, a campaign against that, you know, sort of thing about that because the police dealt really badly with the case and and um, it was an amazing conversation to have at a have at a party and well, not that it went to, in deep well it just, yes um, it, <laughs> don't do that joke <laughs> it, um, it, well it was just like it's just what you want, it's a proper I mean it was, you know, obviously horrendous unfortunate sort of conversation but it was a really interesting conversation to see this guy taking something horrible and turn it to something um uh sort of great and important so yeah it's yeah proper conversations but whether or not you're I dealing still have your question i'm no, sorry it's all right let's let it be on the back burner the convers- the question being has any of uh, uh, Darren's investigations into the world of sort of woo woo mysticism led to moments of curiosity about the unknown and the unknowable we'll leave that hovering mm, lurking mm. as a specter in the space while continuing to examine the idea of like whether it is a person who in that instance in the case of your ex- his mum you know sort of spoke about from a position of fear about her mortality and her sadness or a person who's going through crisis the the dreadful crisis of false accusation like in that moment I think I recently had a conversation with a woman on the phone I'd never met her her brother asked me to talk to her and she'd lost her son through like through uh, sort of a party drug type terrible misdemeanor and like and when she was telling me this I thought in the moment, it went from my head. I'm not qualified to deal with this, so I have to find in myself the, the you know, the human capacity capacities of compassion and warmth, whilst knowing really, like you know, there's certain things in life that there is no combination of words that are going to sort of push someone into a new state of mind. But often, what's being asked of you, I understand, is a kind of presence, a kind of witness, mm. being there for someone. Yeah. Now, like I've almost had uh, the opposite dire- um, journey to you of coming from a position of if not atheism, nihilism and like kind of mass like sort of individualism to a position of like I believe in God and like, you know we we can have a long conversation and I hope hopefully we will about like a sort of like that that it, the sort of the degree of orthodoxy and how where I draw that idea from and how I sort of personally interact with it. Um but but in an instance like that, that's almost kind of what I'm interfacing with. I'm like, my individual personal consciousness can't deal with this. Please give me access to what I need to be and need to say to so that I can hold this woman in this moment and yeah. say the 
right thing. And for me, it's a kind of a yielding and a kind of surrender and letting go of the limitations of my own sort of ego so that Mm. I can be present, so that I don't say something mad. There's enough examples in my own life of actually saying something mad, but less and less lately, the more and more I've been sort of surrendering. But that important is just being present, isn't it? I, I, I do have this sort of thing like if we go go back to say the party situation or most social situations that you you see the version of somebody that they show you you see this lovely polished probably the best version of themselves they're showing you in the same way if you have a couple over for dinner you tend to see that relationship working at its best uh but then you know that you yourself have this not not you well all of us we have this you know big (laughs) ugly clumsy embarrassing thing called a private life that follows us around like a big lumbering giant and it's our starting point is how you know having to we forget they've got exactly the same thing we're seeing this lovely polished version of themselves we're comparing it to what we know of ourselves which is very different and that's a difficult starting point and i think ultimately which and of course things like you know instagram make it so much worse because then you're dealing with highly polished branded versions of people that comparing that with your sort of worthless uh, private life and all the clumsiness and embarrassment that comes with that um but ultimately i think we just we just desperately want to know that the things that are wrong with us are shared by other people and that and for someone just to be present with this because it it just sort of validates yes. everything doesn't it it's it's such a basic thing i just i don't know how you know if you are growing up in that generation now where you're only seeing these horribly polished curated versions of other people's lives how you how you you find any you know place to put your own complicated messy internal experience in relation to that in a sense it can only come from one another and you know from our dealing with ourselves in conjunction with and collaboration with one another like on my own my tendency is to become quite self-condemning, isolated and fearful. Uh, almost as if, well, not almost as if, we, we're not designed to live solipsistic lives trapped in sort of neurological circuits of self-doubt and uh, and continual examination. We have to break that up with interaction. We do need to have external connection. Again, trying to uh, um, move to my initial question that you're dancing around at like Nuriev, like that, uh, like that. Um, you know, when I think of, you know, we live in, you know, post-logical positivism, which is a phrase I learned about an hour ago. And I'm very keen to use well, in the well podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're have, like, have a great. <laughs> do, do I have I earned a great yet, <laughs> Darren? Is this, is this something that you're going to use to manipulate me over the course of the interview? A grape reward? There is a bowl of grapes on the table. If you can't see, it. are we being filmed? I don't even know if you do film. Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, there'll, there'll be some. They can clips, see the grapes on the table if they want. They if can they listen wish. to it as audio. But it, vivid linguists such as we can paint. <laughs> portrait of these grapes as, as effortlessly as Rembrandt <laughs> I would say um, portrait might not be the right time but uh, my point yeah. uh, being that you know we sort of have a tendency and you, in a sense from a cultural perspective you've touched upon it from mentioning Instagram to live in a sort of a, a sensory and empirical realm of like you know these are the patterns that we can observe optically these are the patterns I can smell and taste and hear but we know that there are patterns beyond the limitations of the sensory realm through the magnification achieved through you know the practice of science but my understanding is that there are some patterns and forms of consciousness that may not exist within the remit of uh, of 
ordinary sensory experience now when you get a version of that as you evidently did in a christian upbringing that didn't chime with you and felt like presumably reductive and 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 i'm guessing at odds with who you were as an individual most obviously sexuality i'm guessing that 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 may set you in a position of adversity to many of the ideas that are smuggled uh, uh, mm. along with mysticism but I'm interested in how because it seems to me that you're moving from a position of uh, entertainer to a position of sort of personal development and self-awareness and healing in in one sense so I, I want to talk about what your relationship is to the mystical and mm. as you continue to evolve okay that was um, a long question wasn't it mate yeah yeah have a grape have a grape <laughs> we'll uh, stop for a brief grape we'll stop for a brief grape they're good grapes um grape. excellent grapes Sound of water and grapes. <clears throat> I'm very professional. You should definitely have your own podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm thinking about it. I'm something else to talk about. But we should probably answer the question. Um, so I went... So I, yes, I was very much a Christian. I, the, the sexuality thing didn't put me at odds against it. I think actually what happened was the um, Christian became quite a sort of um, nice way of covering up the sort of awkwardness of of the whole sexy world because I didn't quite know where that was going so it was quite nice having a sort of a general excuse as to why I didn't really talk about those things because I was too pious <laughs> um, but when then I became uh, uh, I definitely became like an atheist and I that but that was really because I just I I didn't have a lot of Christian friends so it was very much a private belief um, uh, and I just sort of thought bit by bit I couldn't really justify it. The, um, I had a friend who was a psychic healer um, and we had lots of heated discussions uh, whereby I was saying, look, this is just a nonsense circular belief and you're just, you know, looking for confirmation for what you already believe and so on and there's nothing, there's no evidence to support it. And I was sort of thinking in the back of my mind, well, I'm sure it's exactly the same with a, with a religious belief. So I... Couldn't ended up not really being able to justify it, and um, so turned very much against it. And I think when you do that, you have a very strong disbelief that matches your initially strong belief, right? That would make sense. I've softened since then. Um, I don't, I don't uh, believe in God. I wouldn't say, but I, th- what I do think, this is particularly like I'm 48, right? So I'm sort of now and that kind You're of looking good. So thank you very much. A lot of uh, moisturizer. So. Quite expensive moisturizer, um, and as I've sort of started the sort of sort of second half of life, uh, you become aware of the importance of. So I guess in Jungian terms, you've you've slain the dragon, and now you've got to rescue the princess, right? So you've, your ego's been out there battling around, being ambitious, and all those things that it kind of has to do to find out who it is. But now you need to serve something bigger. The ego needs to needs to step down. Um, so. Uh, and there's you know, there's death and resurrection right there. You know you have something has to die in order for something something new to grow. Yes. Um, so the way I now see religion is that it, I, I think it points to something that is really important as part of a human experience, and that is connecting, transcending essentially, connecting with something larger than yourself. I think um, historically something um, happened that gave people uh, a real kind of visceral knowledge of that feeling whatever that meant back then and then as time moves on that that moment in history falls out of living memory so 
beliefs and practices arise to recreate that sort of feeling, but they're now already divorced from whatever that that was. And then time moves on, and the, that you know becomes the church, and the church becomes politicised and monetised, and so on. And now what you end up with is a set of a set of um, well, it creates dogma for a start. All of these are very different things from the original experience. It creates a lot of things that are now very easy to take a pop at as an atheist. Um, and, you know, there's no reason not to, I suppose. But but they are signposts, I think, back to something that is important. And that's a feeling of connecting with something that's bigger than yourself. So, uh, and if you don't find a place for that, it tends to latch itself onto things that don't satisfy it, like money and like fame and so on, that we think will give us an elevation out of our ordinary life and a, you know, a, a transformation and all of those things. And of course, they, they don't. So we need to find it somewhere. It doesn't need to be with God, doesn't need to be in anything that's overtly spiritual. We might find it through our kids or through, you know, uh, the work that we do or kind of anything really. But it's important to find it somewhere because otherwise you're left without any real kind of meaning and meaning trumps happiness, I think, any day. <clears throat> yes, that was my answer. Can I have a great? Yeah, you can. I think the, for after that, you have got limitless access to grapes. To grapes. So the, I mean, I'll follow you home if you want. <laughs> with a little satchel of grapes, <laughs> lowering them. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I reckon is, uh, what I reckon is, like from from what you've said there. I mean, because obviously all of us, like, sort of, we're wedded to our own sort of subjective encounters with institutionalized ideas and because my childhood was i think almost it felt to me organically about the rejection of like i don't like this school i'm not sure mm. i even like family i don't like it like a sort of a sort of cynical rejection i guess i was probably wounded and afraid and didn't trust anything or anyone so like my personal evolution has been about allowing some of those ideas and being sort of softening my resistance to them. And then, of course, I've, you know, significantly, I had sort of psychedelic encounters in like sort of adolescence of taking hallucinogens and experiencing the dissolution of self you know like and again not in the type of way that people should be taking hallucinogens in my opinion like with some sort of either some kind of shaman or a gentleman in a white coat with his arm around just saying it's okay have another sip of water you know like with lads from Leeds <laughs> in New Cross like a misery yeah. oh my god there is no me yeah. how is my consciousness operating my hand where do these things intersect the material and the immaterial world um, so and because I've again I'm in sort of a uh, 12-step recovery program which is, requires the kind of Jungian journey that you've alluded to the willingness to let go of the egoic dragon greed self and the accepting of a quest I've been thinking a lot that you know from for me personally I have to let go of the idea of happiness and embrace the idea of purpose happiness so fleeting and so uh, intrinsically related to pleasure in the kind of culture that we're from that purpose is a much more noble or possibly even helpful yeah. guide um but like when you've done so many brilliant things apparently magical things you know like sort of the the ones that sort of stay with me are like are the one we like it seemed like that guy was getting those letters to win those races but everyone had had every possible permutation yeah, yeah, i fucking yeah. love that one i tell people about that in america if they've got if a few people i mean that are not uh, are familiar with your work and then uh and the one where you've got the advertising execs through suggestion to sort of use a particular advertising motif for a pet cemetery i think it was um 
and I've been to your live shows as well and seen you whittle through audiences, which you've sort of explained to me sub subsequently is like a way of ascertaining who the sort of suggestibility or, you know, the uh, malleability or just the ease of working with them. You know, I've seen, and, and that mad shit you did with bus routes and timetables. I've seen you achieve so many incredible things, which are, you've, you know, dis explained to me is simply the result of endeavor and practice, not the result of- And cheating know, sometimes. Cheating, yeah, downright yeah. cheating, fraud, <laughs> <laughs> skullduggery. Um, <laughs> Um, but like, uh, I, 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 but the for, for example, the faith healing experiences yeah. you've had. Uh, can we talk about that for for a moment and what that might potentially yeah. indicate? That was the most extraordinary um, uh, experience of, of touring and doing a live show that I've had. So a few years before, I did a documentary called Miracles for Sale, where I trained somebody up to be a healer, and then we tried to pass them off as a real one out in Dallas. But I kind of got the bug for doing it, so. Um, this show Miracle, which is on uh, Netflix now, just throwing that out. I tried to do that casually; it didn't sound very convincing, but it's on Netflix. Mm. Um, and uh, so, in it, I uh, do this faith healing, evangelical faith healing. I didn't think it was really going to work uh, enough. I thought I can. There are certain tricks that these healers use. So I thought I know I can get to the end of, like you know, a kind of a routine. So enough to try it, but I didn't really think, given that the audience. A skeptical like me, they're not coming there expecting healing. They're not coming there believing in healing, uh, and I was staggered that it like what really are the basic, worked. What are the basic tricks there? What makes it work? Uh, the, yeah, the basic tricks at the beginning, like where you go, like we go. I'm looking for someone called Darren. I'm looking for someone. Have you? Someone's passed over the other side. Is it just that they're very open questions that? by law of averages is that the technique that sort of thing which is like psychic readings and mediumships yeah you're just um well there's so there's so many different ways of doing that kind of thing there's basically hot reading and cold reading so cold reading would be i mean you see it all the time you throw out a name i'm getting the name janet that could be someone who's died it could be someone who sat there it could be a friend at home who knows someone's has died or it could be anything and then they the person goes oh yes that's me that was my sister and then the psychic goes, that's right. She's saying she's coming through for her sister. And then you, how Why did you know? Why don't you say that? that in the first place? Why don't you say that in the first place? It would be, would be, would be a really good response. Because I also <laughs> know Janet. And I was nearly going to be me that said it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that's, um, yeah, there's that. So those uh, techniques are basically almost could be used in sales or could be used in any format. To, yeah, uh, so yeah, so exactly. techniques that's for establishing reading. Hot reading is when you have information on the person. Uh, so there was a very famous psychic called doris stokes mm. um who uh, I remember her yeah yeah so she was a like really sort of inoffensive lovely old lady sort of was her kind of character mm. but i um heard of somebody who got called up by her people this is the story i heard uh because this this woman had lost her lost her a son i think in a drowning accident and had been in the local papers and um doris stokes's team called her up and said oh doris has a message for you from your son, so, you know, would you, um, would you like you to come to the event? And she said, oh, can she not just give me the message now, or can you pass on? No, no, she'd really like you to come to the event. We've got a seat for you. Uh, can you wear a red jumper so that she can spot you easily? So this woman goes along, and then, of course, during the show, it's, oh, there's a lady over there. the lady in the red jumper over there. I'm sensing your son died. And, of course, she just gives all the information that was, you know, just in the paper. And wow. it looks like something that with this woman's experience of it is very different. She felt very sort of violated by it. Mm. They see that all the time. The worst worst version of that, I think, is with the studio, TV studio psychics. I've seen this, that the guy comes out, so before they start filming, he's got a studio audience, and says, is anybody hoping anyone's going to come through? And hands go up, 
And he just goes around asking people, who are you hoping will come through? Is there some bit of evidence I could give you that you know would be proof that it's real? And of course, these people, got no reason to be cynical, tell him everything he needs to know. And then the cameras start rolling and he just says all that stuff back to them and they burst into tears. And it's horrible. So that's hot reading. That's when you've got the information and you're passing it off as, you know, psychic. And cold reading is when you're saying things in a way that people make fit. Uh, so that's that. Healing, the the evangelical healing is was very different. And what was going on there, well, it wasn't about information that people are making fit. It was about a kind of quite physiological experience. So I got the audience to get a bit of adrenaline going with a bit of a sort of positive visualisation and some music and lights, because adrenaline's a painkiller, right? And when you go and see these healers, these are, the, you know, evangelical faith healers and people being slain in the spirit, they call it, you know, falling back on stage, all of that stuff. Uh, there's always a lot of adrenaline in the songs and, the, you know, a lot of emotional manipulation first. And then, um, so that was one part of it. And the other part of it that then makes it work is interrupting people's story of their pain and their ailment. So, um, as I was telling your, your lovely wife, Laura, earlier on today, there was a woman that came up in the first week who had been paralysed on one side of her body since she was a kid, and she was in floods of tears because she could move her arm for the first time. But these people, your audience, they're not coming for Doris Stokes no, or for not. some evangelist. They're, they're like, like Darren me. Brown. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I was so surprised that this, that this worked. But they just, I, I just say to people, just enter into this, and so, you know, the results are interesting. Just do what I say, and and we'll see what happens. And you're only dealing with a small percentage, right? So if you take two thousand people. And then you filter the people out of that that respond, and then the ones that are best responding out of that, and you get them up on stage. You're only dealing with a small percentage. Plus, so like this woman, like she's moving her arm, and she, you know, her feeling, all that's come back. Um, and then, even then, you think, well, maybe that's only going to last for the ten minutes she's on stage. But I still hear from people years later saying, just so you know, that did properly heal. So there's nothing going, like, I'm not healing them. There's, if you've had an x-ray before and afterwards, nothing's changed. But the psychological component of suffering is what's interesting. And for some people and some ailments and, you know, some situations, that's enough to turn something around because they've lived out a story. Like, I, I, it sounds silly, but I had a bursitis in my shoulder for a long time. So I it basically meant I couldn't really move my left shoulder very well. So when I put a jacket on, I tend to, I've got used to sort of making this arm dead and pulling the sleeve up with the other arm. I don't need to do that anymore, but I do it because I've got so used to doing it. It's become part of a habit. And if somebody said, your arm is healed, go on, move it around. Now see what it's like. Can you put a jacket on? Can you put a jacket? I'd be like, oh, how did you do that? I can move it, you know? And it's just the story that I've been living out. So I think it was probably that, but, you know. Yeah, but you've obviously got, this, uh, it seems to me that you've got, because uh, it wasn't just one person that got healed, it's a number of people that got healed. Every night, every night. Again, You're healing again. people every night! Yeah. Right, so obviously, like, what you just told me there with the jacket story, it's good that you have this sort of quizzical perspective, but it seems that your bias is precisely the opposite. It's a materialistic bias that's towards rationalism. There must be a rational explanation to this, i.e. an explanation that I can understand. And uh, this might seem like an odd comparison, but uh, I think it'll make sense as I explain it. Like, I'm friendly with uh, Noel Gallagher out of Oasis, right? And if you ask Noel about, like, you know, what does that song mean? What does that bit mean of that song? He goes, Don Noel just fucking said it, right? He'll never go, oh, well, I was just trying mm. to allude to the, right? <clears throat> but the fact is, is that in that music, there's the ovocation, evocation, rather, of certain feelings and moods and states. And whether or not Noel cops to that mm. or he acknowledges it or even is aware of it, it's there, yeah. right? And it seems to me that if you're 
healing people <laughs> on stage, whether you're healing them from the perspective of exposing it or not, you're healing people. And, uh, that, that, um, and well, of course, there's one example of like, yes, uh, they were unconscious that the capacity for them to move their arm had long been uh, realised and they didn't bring it into their own knowledge or whatever. But another possibility is, you know, like with placebos everywhere that somewhere in the body are the bit i mean we know that the body heals itself anyway if i cut myself it's going to heal itself we just don't know how to access that data yeah. i mean there would be a rational explanation for those things if i had a better brain and yeah. different senses so is it possible also that like a kind of placebo you, people being told heal that arm now if they say well oh, it's darren brown he i see him do some magic shit on the telly mm. like they might just obediently heal their body <laughs> well I did have a mad moment of thinking well I'm sure I could pack out the O2 I mean like we could sell the show as a secular healing show I make no claims it doesn't work on everybody but it certainly works on some people um, but then that's when you start to go mad um, because it's not about reducing it saying oh it's only this because it, it clearly is like potentially life changing for these people but it's only a smallish number of people it's very hard to evaluate exactly what the percentage was um, so yeah, that's the, probably that's the... diabetes drugs that work on a you know 10% of people that are available on the market yeah, you know maybe. what I mean if it was coming from a pharmacological underwritten by a pharmacological mm. or, or commercial it'd be a very uh, different thing yeah, yeah but like... what, what, what is important I think it was like this this is a real effect uh it's for me it felt more important to be able to sort of isolate that and go look I'm seeing this work every night and what this points to is something interesting about the psychology of suffering mm -hmm. that's that's more of a useful place than well I'm doing it let's say it's for real so let's advertise this as a healing show and have poor you know people dragging themselves I mean I've been to these healing shows where people are being they get dragged children dragged around the country by their parents with you know kids with a down syndrome that's not that is not going to get healed on that stage that's you know some in an amputee that arm isn't going to grow back and people in hospital beds that were being dragged around. i mean it's just horrible it's such a vile scene so um you don't want to go well hey look it's it's real because it's happening i think you, it's more useful to go hang on what what is what is happening and then how how is that useful? You know, it's not. It's not about reducing it and saying, "Oh, it's just, it's just this or just that," because it clearly was was happening. But uh... something unanticipated and beyond our like our sort of current understanding of the way that healing works occurred. I, I think it's. I think it's well understood. I mean, I've spoken to doctors and physios and people like that about it quite a lot since. And everyone, everyone seems to get it. But I think for the in terms of what it looks like, which is why it lends itself so well to a stage show, because it looks like magic. In the same way hypnosis looks like magic, it's all kind of the same thing. But actually, what's going on is quite, I think, probably quite ordinary. Um, <clears throat> a little difficult to sort of pin down, but it comes out in this sort of experience that does look amazing, probably looks more amazing than it feels sometimes. Right, it's theatrically rewarding. Yeah. Are there any of your sort of th techniques that you used to do sort of at the beginning of your career and are therefore now redundant that you can sort of talk about sort of explicitly saying, well, all I really do is I go, I, I use that phrase and then they're listening and they've heard that phrase so it seems that, that I'm predicting what they're going to say but actually I've throughout the conversation been stitching into it. The, you know, Are there things that go, oh, that could make us understand how rudimentary and and so rational these things are well, it's sort of <clears throat> excuse me it's a mixture so I started off as a hypnotist and then I and I but it was difficult actually trying to make a living as a student 
doing hypnosis. So I got into... Oh, thank you. Pour me another water. Thank you so much. So I got into doing um, close-up magic. So uh, it's always been a mixture of both things, like magic tricks dressed up as psychology, and then suggestion and psychology sometimes dressed up as magic tricks. It's always it's just a bit of a blur. And when I do my stage shows now... Um, uh, they are about, you know, kind of creating an effect like like the healing. But the healing was, that's a good example. It's a mixture of, you know, those techniques I was talking about, about the, the adrenaline and the, the affecting people's way of, you know, the, the living out their stories. That's real. Mm. But there were also some tricks I was using in there as well, which I'd learned from healers, uh, which... Uh, which you know they just they're just fraudulent tricks. So one I had tried on me was um, leg lengthening. So they um, and if you <laughs> get these legs lengthened, yeah. If you well, if you type into YouTube leg lengthening uh, healing, you'll why do you'll people find... want that? Well, the thing is, so a healer will say to you sometimes, and you know you know they're just an out and out fraud if they do this because there's no way of like hiding the fact you are just cheating. They'll say, oh, you see, he walks with that limp, so he doesn't walk with a limp. And he said this to me, oh, he walks with a limp, let's heal that. I don't walk with a limp. Um, that's because one, one leg is longer than the other. And they get you up on stage, they stick your legs out, and as they turn to the audience and say, look at this, or turn to the camera and say, come in closer, they pull one of your... It sounds so stupid. One of the heels off your shoes. Only ever people Aww. with, like, loose-fitting shoes or slip-ons. Um, to make one... F- leg look a little longer right so the heels come out a bit further but all the attention's on the other foot where the heel is pushed in normally and they say look this leg's too short so we're going to make this leg grow out and then while all attention is on that leg they slowly push the heel on the other leg that you're not really paying as much attention to you're really sort of you know measuring against it they slowly push that in but because all the attention's on the other leg they're not doing anything with it's oddly kind of convincing and then they make you run around and say look he's not there's no limp uh, his leg is healed um and i've been on the receiving end of this and i've done it myself um and uh, so there are tricks like that they use and i suppose you i suppose with what i research. saw is a mixture of that yeah yeah um yours is a, a mixture of what that sort of sleight of hand distraction and yeah you know, and suggest i've just always found it interesting i think ultimately my toolkit is sort of the the stories that the people tell themselves that's kind of and the best tricks are sometimes just a word that you a word that i change and it um creates like a whole massive effect out of nothing other than than a bit of language which is really difficult without actually sort of going oh they did this and then this happened it's it's hard to do that because I have to to sort of keep some things I guess a bit secret because it's It's my livelihood it's my livelihood (laughs) Um, and I still do that you know stuff on stage the TV shows are different now they've kind of moved into um, people going through real people going through real dramas and I'm kind of more of a backstage string puller I guess which I quite like because I uh, magic always sort of felt like it you know, dramatically, it's just vapid. You're just going, look at me, aren't I clever? I can make anything happen, which is, there's no drama in that at all. Yes. There's no hero struggling. Sometimes right? it's naff. I mean, a lot yeah. whilst like one of the, you know, like I was sort of on the surface of it, you know, which is not always a bad place to be, like the, you, the aesthetics of what you did were interesting in the way that sort of David Blaine was an evolution or further mm. back, David Copperfield was an evolution or Houdini, like I know you're sort of, I know you're a student of all of this stuff, um, but yours are presenting it in a sort of a rational and like sort of, I would say sort of in a sense stripping back the mystery of it I, I thought that was quite fascinating another thing that occurs when you're saying this um like 
Do you ever feel that you have somewhat fetishised the rather microscopic industry of faith healers and sort of hullabaloo, mm. uh, contrasted with the mass con practised on the entire population of this Coca-Cola is going to make you feel young? <laughs> or oh, mm. this Apple product, if you don't have it, you're not good enough. <laughs> or oh, buy this magazine, you should be like... You know, so the, these techniques of suggestion and mm. pre, you know evoking certain states through adrenaline, they're... You know, they're not only happening in a sort of that that sort of rather ancillary, quaint way of the snake oil salesman. They're happening the great blocks of human consciousness smashed into annihilation by sort of a commercialized consumerist culture, which I think is a sort of uh, what do I want to say? Sort of saturation point, a kind of a peak experience. Do you think about that? The comparisons of your ability to manipulate and social and cultural versions of that. Yeah. So. I think partly that comes from the fact that if I'm going to, you know, the, the the targets or the subjects I'm going to look at, if I'm going to, you know, debunk them or recreate them or whatever, need to have a certain kind of theatrical quality to them. Because if I'm performing and doing those things, they need... So it's easier to recreate faith healing than it, say, would be to look at those issues, like in the form of a theatre show. Um, and to an extent, even the form of a TV show, the sort of things that I, that I do. Where, where I think they... Um, I also lack a little bit of the... I don't know if it's just the, the balls or the, um, the sort of sense of mission with some of those bigger things. I kind of quite like... Um, uh, I don't like sticking my head too much above the parapet and getting shot at it's just not quite me so i tend to go for these why things like that you're a sweet shy man i'm sweet and shy I'm, I'm an accommodator that's probably why i'm just naturally quite accommodating um but i do think i do think though that so, so like take the faith healing what you've got in the the interesting thing to me about the faith healing aside from you know how it works or doesn't work is the faith model that's there so you have to believe that you post healing right people are sent off throw your pills away uh, and if you, if the healing, if the illness comes back, it's because you didn't believe enough. You didn't maintain your belief and faith that, that God had healed you, right? So of course, because of course it's going to come back the vast majority of the time. Um, and uh, so you have this sort of cycle of self-blame. But that's exactly the same as... Um, the law of attraction, for example, you know, it's the same thing. Uh, Rhonda Byrne says quite specifically in, uh, you know, The Secret that you put this belief out into the universe. If the universe doesn't provide it, it's because you haven't committed yourself fully to that belief and it is your fault. Um, and that, that, so although it is a quaint, silly, you know, strange niche thing, faith healing, it is, I think, it's a symptom of a, of a kind of... Uh, a way of thinking, which I think taps right into sort of our obsession with, you know, um, uh, optimism and self-belief and goal setting and all those things, which ultimately just leaves us feeling like we've failed when they don't quite uh, come together. In a sense, American individualism through capitalism has a comparable message. If you don't succeed, if you're poor and your mm. house has just been foreclosed, you should have worked harder because look yeah. at Kobe Bryant. He's fucking brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's good at basketball. <laughs> well, be good at basketball. I'm not tall enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, like it's sort of like it's a... Mm, I suppose uh, this isn't something I imagined us talking about prior to the 
this conversation, but I recognise that the template is is comparable. Uh, we were talking another thing before you came, and my wife and her mates were talking about with some excitement. May I say your, your imminent arrival? One of the things that we talked about is like. <laughs> why don't Darren Brown take over the world? <laughs> you know, right. like you could sort of like why don't you know take over a big corporation uh, or a country or something? Is that because why is that? <clears throat> I've never had any ambition at all, and I think I think it's on the one hand has been good for me, uh, but on the other hand, it means that I I mean I spend most of my time being asked to do things, speak at things, and just declining them because. I suppose because they're a challenge or that's a bit of a stress and I quite, I'm very good at avoiding anything that's stressful. Hence writing a book on, you know, stoicism essentially, which mm. is, resonates very well if you're very good at avoiding stress. Um, but the, yeah, which is sort of the flip side of it, isn't it? I think I, I like the fact I've never been ambitious. I never, you know, like wanted to have the TV show or wanted to do this, wanted to do that. They kind of, I was just open to them. But what I, what I only ever wanted was to just, be enjoying myself from day to day and that's put genuinely out the universe just put it out the universe I wouldn't mind I a TV my dream show <laughs> yeah. but it, yeah, that, that's four. <laughs> yeah so that's 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 you don't feel me, very but... driven you're quite happy with uh... yeah I've never no how is your anxiety and fear and all that kind of thing you're not you're good with that now yeah I've never I've never really had I I get um I know I can get a bit if I know when I do get stressed and it's normally because I want time on my own mm. to read or stuff I need to do and other things are interfering with that. And I know it makes me quite curt and not very nice to be around. So I know it happens. So it's not like I don't ever get stressed. But I um, I don't... I, I, I just don't really find... I try and set my expectations at a level that maybe it's kind of just realistic that, you know, things don't always work out how you want them to. When and why and how did you make the decision to... Uh, whilst I understood what you said from talking to your mate who was a sort of, a, you know, in a psychic stuff that you recognised as a paradigm, it felt familiar to your sort of belief in Christianity. What point did you throw it off and at what point did you... It decided to wholly embody the man that you are um, with regard to your sexuality and your whole being and uh, how? Uh, that was kind of around 30. Which I is think. surprising, isn't it? Is it? Yeah, yeah, I, th I think it is. Um, but you're somewhere around there. Because like, look, this isn't, it's not going to change now. And I don't want to have, um, I don't want to be in a situation where I'm turning up to an event with my partner because I was seeing some of the time and then it just being like a sort of a a secret or like a weird you know thing so I thought so I sort of um uh came out um but I, I'd had a friend take me out for dinner and he came out to me uh but he made such a it was such a big serious thing for him and I just remember thinking almost obliged to say oh, I'm so sorry how terrible because it was <laughs> like he was taking his friends out for dinner one at a time so I thought okay well if I do this I need to just treat it lightly and forget the fact that it feels such a huge heavyweight on me because it isn't to other people and that was that's the real lesson that people just don't why, people so don't care they don't care it's of no interest at all why did it feel heavy uh because you carry around uh and I'm going to obviously speak for myself and it might be vastly different now but um I'd certainly carried around a lot of uh shame about it which is is uh, when you carry around a sort of a guilty sense of like, oh God, uh, you 
develop a bit like all the ways I've found ways of uh, avoiding the sore shoulder sort of ma maladaptive measures for the rest of the body to accommodate for that so you you get very good at um finding ways of diverting from those conversations and never having to really address it. And I think that that horrible sort of 70s um, cliche of the gay man being, you know, the hairdresser or the interior decorator or the actor or the fashionista or whatever, I think comes from there's an element of truth in it because you get very good at putting on a dazzling surface, wow. you know, dressing oddly or, or whatever. Um, uh, and for a long time I was sort of... Uh, uh, I think I was doing that. And magic's a great, great way of doing that. You know, why be this sort of interesting, controlling magician figure? I mean, that's a great way of diverting conversation from what size tits do you like, which is sort of occasionally people would try and tie me down on those questions. And I didn't You're really moving in some strange answer. circles. One, yeah. it was a circle where you weren't able to be open about your sexuality. Mm. And secondly, you hang out with chauvinists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> I think they were just, they were trying to cut to the core. Look, let's cut to the core, Derek. Yes. Is it 34B? Are we talking double H? What are you into, <laughs> man? Yeah. Never mind these card tricks. <laughs> <laughs> let's look at this catalogue of brevious. <laughs> so are you from yeah. a small place, a small town? or I grew up in Purley, which is, yeah, yeah real sort of, Daily Makes Mail sense. suburbia, yeah, yeah, and uh, there wasn't access to because I feel like um obviously I'm uh, I've started to query these kind of boundaries and these terms more as sort of post structuralist thought sort of kicks in and stuff. But like you know, so even before saying I'm a heterosexual, but <clears throat> what I mean to say is I've never had sex yeah. with uh, anyone other than women. Uh, like, uh, but like I feel like um I still have had sort of sense of shame about myself, and I feel like in a way like my journey was like like the first thing I found was oh right I'm a performer then oh I'm a drug addict then right, I can't do these drugs anymore it's killing me and then then it was the sort of interfacing in a an ever-evolving way with what it means to be inverted commas spiritual which has mm. for me come down mm. to basically open-mindedness connectedness mm. kindness quite sort of simple ideas although yeah. i can do bloody complicated versions if that's what you're into and but like what i feel for, i feel for you when you say this it feels to me like you went an unusually long time without people connecting to you in a way where you felt safe well yeah maybe i mean i i um I'm a bit of a not a, we're all a bit of a loner, but I'm I'm a bit of a loner. I think also I, I played on my own when I was young. Cause my brother's like nine years younger than me, and I think if you play a lot alone as a kid, you tend to bring that with you as well into later life. So I'm definitely, um, uh, you know, a little on the introverted side. Are you um, a good communicator in your relationship now? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think so. Oh, yeah, relationships are interesting, aren't they? Because they, they all that. All the madness that you carry with you. It, I think the principal value of being in a relationship is that other person going, you, no, you can't do that. That is, that's mad. You can't, <laughs> you can't just be that person. You know, you're in a relationship now. Because otherwise you just kind of cross-state, don't you? You develop a, <laughs> a shell around you of all this just unacceptable um, behavior. And uh, so, it's, you know, and now I said I'm sort of 48. So I'm kind of, I find myself a little bit, caught between um you know that kind of nietzschean urge of become who you are you know like there's this version of myself that i should be heading towards and everyone else needs to clear out the way and let me do it <laughs> versus 
the opposite of that, which is like, well, maybe the best version of myself is right now in the relationships that I've got. I've got a partner I love and two dogs that I love. And, you know, the sort of domestic ordinariness maybe is kind of, uh, you know, um, a good thing. But the, the two the two do feel slightly, um, like, you know, pulling and pushing in different directions. But that's kind of, uh, that's interesting. And I think, I think, uh, I think, yeah, that's where relationships really important like letting letting relationship change you rather than just obsessing as to whether or not you're supposed to change the other person yes being open to uh you know change and and somebody making you revise your uh presumptions of what's normal i'm lucky in that i have a sort of an ideology that has a degree of flexibility in it i.e specifically 12-step ideology mm. which is sort of you know obviously about in my case abstaining from drugs and alcohol but is a, in a way quite a holistic philosophy that yeah. you run every problem and relationship through yeah. a sort of a system that involves inventory, confession, restitution, quite sort of fundamental and basic principles. But it really helps me with stuff like it incorporates don't try and change a person you're in a relationship with. If you yeah. if you if you don't like that person, don't be in a relationship with them. Mm. Or you know, it's you. You can change you. You can't change mm. anybody else. Mm. Like and 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 that it's nice that I have that as a reference point because my tendency is, hey, would you not do anything like that? I'd like you to become like this. That's my general. Yeah. You know, to, to be sort of quite you know sort of dictatorial about how other people's behaviour. Now I. When I spot myself doing it, I, I'm willing to relinquish it. Well, so you were drawn to stoicism when I've, I've listened to you talking about it before, and it seems to me that you know, forgive me because I know you've studied it. It sounds to me like it's in a sense from a, a classical tradition, but s encompasses a lot of ideas that we might recognise from Eastern philosophy. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, well, the first the first Stoics were from the East, oh. um, so it's sort of taken some recognizably buddhist ideas and let them sit in a quite western rational sort of mode and language um and then interestingly of course christianity came along and had to win the stoics over so 500 years later so it kind of um used a lot of stoic ideas but christianized them like the idea of the of the, the dutiful citizen which the christian upstanding dutiful it's actually a very stoic idea so you you can sort of follow the sort of eastern ideas up through stoicism and then weirdly into christianity how did they get into into the classical world these eastern ideas uh, they did... just the the first stoics just were coming over from persia and and uh and places and, and were starting this um, because of hellenistic colonialism yeah or... yeah yeah exactly yeah it was a real hodgepodge back then um but it, it's i think it's quite relevant nowadays and it's it's definitely had a bit of resurgence cognitive behavioral therapy is based quite explicitly on stoic principles and that's very popular nowadays um well cbt that just yeah. means don't be ridiculous you're not gonna get <laughs> hit by a bus there's no buses on your street is it that is it like rationally think about what you're saying it's sort of a, yeah it's kind of about just stepping into the 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 that throwing a spanner into these works between, between your kind of thoughts and your behaviour and, and um, kind of going, well, where can you stop that process and oh. quest question some of these things? Um, Stoicism is basically about uh, not trying to control things that you're not in control of, which I'm sure rings bells to, with what you're doing at the moment. That, you know, you're in control of your thoughts and your actions, everything else, what other people do, how they let you down or how they, whatever, what they think of you, everything else isn't under your control. And actually... You can decide that all of those things are fine. It doesn't always come easily, that thought. And sometimes you have to really let it kind of drip, drip into the soul and, and take, uh, take hold. But all of the things out of your 
thoughts and actions you can decide are fine. Now, it gets complicated with matters of social injustice, for example, because you might really want to change something and create change in the world and not decide that it's fine. So then you distinguish again the same thing between, well, what am I in charge of? What's my thoughts and actions? So I can do the best that I possibly can to change that thing. I might devote my life to creating social change. So I can commit to that, but I won't commit to the outcome. I won't emotionally commit to an outcome that may happen a generation later. I may only be the starting point for it. Or, you know, again, easier said than done. But the basic idea is not trying to control things that are out of your control. And part of that then is also realising that... Um, it's our reactions to things that create our problems, not the things themselves. You know, and these are, these are ideas that have drifted down um, yeah, a couple of thousand years, and they're in twelve. Exactly, step. yeah, and they're big. They're big ideas. But that's where they came from. They came oh, from these uh, cool. wandering. The stoa was the sort of porchway where they would uh, stand and talk to people and bother them as they were walking past. So they just came from these guys standing around in Athens. Have you considered that this might not be in your career? Just yeah. hanging around a doorway, yeah, yeah, yeah. Evang quietly evangelical. It's nice, isn't it? Yeah. It's really beautiful. I suppose those kind of principles, hearing them now, they're in guard against imagination and hysteria. Like a sort of, oh, you know, one aspect of the imagination is, of course, incredibly creative and wonderful, but another aspect of the imagination, and I believe there are classical terms for this: the imag imagination veritas and the imagination fantastico. I think it's something like that. Like, yeah, the imagination fantastico. Like, oh my God, I could be eaten by a dragon. Oh, Oh no, I'm worried. <laughs> like, you know, that, is that a lump? You know, like we could go <laughs> crazy with fantasy, but they yeah. also your our imagination. Of course, everything around us has been constructed through imagination and to guard against uh, hysteria. But there is, um, yeah, I say I see the incredible value of stoicism. But when I heard you talk about it before, you said that even in studying it and writing about it, you started to, f you said, feel the edges of it and the limitations of it. it was that to do with joy or? Yeah. There, well, what what stoicism gives you brilliantly is a, a robust sense of self. So it was it was born in a time of these Hellenic wars and strife and all these different cultures getting on or not getting on, but that real hodgepodge. It was very useful then. Um, it's also very useful in terms of internal strife and just generally living, living in uncertain times and all of that. Um, and that basic idea of not trying to control what's, what's out of your control and deciding those things are fine. I mean, it's, it, it is brilliant advice. Um, but where they're not so hot um, are, and they, they well, whether or not sort of th things like kindness and a sense of community and so on. Now they, they, it does all loop back round into how you deal with other people, and into they were they were movers and shakers. They had a great sense of community, and it was all about how you get on with other people and so on. But they don't just they don't really their strength isn't in reaching out kindly their strength is all about fortifying the self so um i wrote this book called happy that took me about about three years of writing each each year when i was on tour i'd write a, a block of it and um uh for about a year before that i'd sort of been reading the stoics so it had sort of become part of me and part of my kind of uh language and it really resonated with me i think if you're naturally quite introverted anyway it's it really resonates and it's you know it finds language for stuff that you you know felt that maybe thought you were foolish or childish for thinking and then you go, oh no here are grown ups that have found a lovely way of saying it so that was nice but um but as I got to the end things like you know the the, the whole point is you're the, the 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 reason for not trying to control these things that aren't aren't under your control is to avoid disturbance right you're trying to create a sort of yeah. a tranquility that was their model of happiness which is 
great and so helpful a lot of the time. But disturbance and anxiety are really important as well, because how do you know that something is wrong? Like, how do you know that you need to change something unless you, first of all, it makes you feel anxious? How do you know whether you need to change your job? You need to change your job because the, you know it's only when the job feels and makes you unhappy that you know you need to change it. Um, so actually what's, I think, more useful is like letting anxiety sit comfortably within you and letting that be part of you know your integrated sense of who you are that's more important i think than just trying to avoid it because then there's a fine line between that and you know a, a, a you never grow or you just never kind of move forward because you think anxiety is always something to be avoided so that's i still think it really you know holds up but they're just, they're just as you said just the edges of it that i thought well there's other things that are important finding meaning in life they're not really big on meaning particularly um the importance of anxiety, importance of kindness and so on. They're just other things that are really worth exploring too. Yes, like as you say, often I'm trying, like whilst I, a lot of what you have said is uh, practically embedded in the systems that mm. I use to cope with my own somewhat tumultuous mm. In a life, you know, that avoidance of disturbance seems necessary for my mm. character type, you know, but I can see also the necessity for being open to anxiety mm. to in mm. order like you know these i try to think of it as best i can with the limits i have from an evolutionary perspective of what is the function of fear what is the function mm. of anger these things have some sort of biochemical or primal mm. function um you know all of us must live in this state of translation with living as we do with a, a biochemical anato anatomical system designed for a completely different different era yeah, yeah. and here yeah. we are trying to tackle it and cope with it and it seems that there is an enormous disjunct broadly i mean civilization in a sense is the description of that disjunct you were designed to live in these conditions but now you live in these conditions and mm. many of those things fantastic so many beautiful things about culture architecture medicine technology science so many beautiful things but sometimes when it comes to the inner life of an individual or the behavior of communities and collectives there is this uh, uh, jarring dichotomy between who we actually are and the life we're living which i sometimes experience on occasion when i glance at politics which i seldom do these mm. days i'll sometimes just see them i remember when i was a kid watching like it was the first time when i was about sort of 16 i guess they'd start to put house of commons on the telly at yeah, night I remember that yeah yeah and yeah. it was like a big deal wasn't it that they'd put cameras in there and like i had taken some acid and i remember like see <laughs> watching it and having this very raw experience of can't be what's happening <laughs> to run that's the problem you're watching the process as i've become older and somewhat integrated what were once uh, quite tangential psychic experiences into sort of my dominant perspective i see sort of for example theresa may speaking and i think oh my god are you you can't be in charge Go sit down <laughs> have some tea relax for a minute a spa weekend that's what she needs she the spa weekend some reading yeah. everyone just be nice to this person well, yeah. she's clearly under a great deal of stress <laughs> now that whole system of, don't blame yourself this entire system of government <laughs> cannot possibly work what are you trying to try to work with an ideology dreamt up 500 years ago it's not going to work anymore now come on let's have a serious attempt at a better <laughs> idea all of us stop panicking don't don't be self-interested you're coming from your ego you know like so if it's it feels to me that there are sort of giant tracts of humanity that are evolving beyond the systems that we operate within but those systems 
are sort of governed by people with vested interest in their sustenance. Yeah. So it's quite difficult to it's oppose difficult. them. I, I had to go once, do you remember? You d- yes, you did. You did. a terrible headache. I imagine. Well, <laughs> oh, it's nice now. You've... you've uh... So you've turned all that down as far as you're... you're Leaving that alone for a little while until I'm a bit more grounded and rooted and absolutely certain of what it is we're supposed to be doing. Well, that's another thing, isn't it? I think... think, uh, And another reason why somebody might be sceptical of something like Stoicism is just that it's an ism. Um, And I think... I'm quite happy for the sort of, you know, there's Stoicism that's against anxiety, but also the importance of anxiety. I think, I think embracing the fact that we've, we've always been very good versus evil. We've always, we've always had this sort of, you know, binary thing, God, Satan, good, evil, right and wrong. Um, and we could probably do with a bit more yin and yang. You know, the, the, the life is messy and it's complicated and you we have to be able to balance i think opposites and ambivalence and ambiguity and we're terrible at that we don't like it and it's for you know a number of obvious reasons we um we're not very good at doing it but that that's part of growing up when you're when you're a baby you scream and hopefully somebody brings you what you want and that's how you start life and um uh, uh, ideally the mother is gradually sort of or the caregiver is, is sort of letting you down slowly making you realize that you're not always going to get you know this is donald winnicott it was sort of a successor to freud had this lovely idea of the good enough mother freud had created this idea that you know the mothers had to be sort of perfect because you know your kids were just being ruined by everything so much damage was being done by everything and winnicott very nicely said no it's just you've got to be good enough you actually have to let your kid down. You have to never quite give them everything they want so that they learn that life isn't like that. Um, So what that means is getting older and maturing, growing up is about tolerating ambiguity and having an ambivalence and having room for that. Room for things just being complicated and they're not being, you know, they're not being simple answers or one ism that will give you everything. Don't you agree? I totally agree. You know, Krishnamurti goes, uh, you know, truth is a pathless land that each of us have our own individual he's interface. a news reader what does he know well i'm not talking about krishna guru murphy we're <laughs> <laughs> talking about the guru krishna murphy hey well done that's, thank you that's good punning. that was that was good punning really good. i said it quite quietly because i wasn't quite confident getting the <laughs> right yeah. i swallowed it a bit hopefully you can lift it in we'll the lift, uh, in yeah, the yeah we'll lift those levels darren um often a pun one can be reticent to use it in this mm. day and age but a good one yeah, like that especially yeah. you know that's not the first time I've brought up Krishnamurti and it ain't the first time that the person has responded or the newsreader but it is the first (laughs) First, time that someone's gone the guru Krishnamurti thank you we are now we're through the looking glass now now, I'm now helping myself to a cashew you're moving to denser fattier snacks (laughs) (laughs) by way by way of reward yeah truth is a pathless land meaning that the sort of you know like you said the uh, sort of ambiguity of our inner lives is likely to require more than a sort of a one size fits all ideology that ideologies themselves are not the answer. I've been listening to a lot of stuff, mate, that's about like, you know, we must embrace our individual experience as the guide. And um, to tell you the truth, it's Terence McKenna, who I absolutely adore. He's a sort of, uh, he's dead now, but he was very much into plant medicines, but one of the most lucid and brilliant talkers and thinkers. You should check him out. He's got a very sort of humorous voice, I must say. <laughs> but uh, he talks about a lot about, um, 
you know, we're having our sort of consciousness prescribed to us and we're not being given access to our birthright as free, uh, you, know, you know, he would query the term citizens because citizen embedded in that term is the fact that we're conditioned and that our realities are dominated and governed and we're not just talking about excuse me freedoms as in freedom of, of sexual expression mm. freedom of cultural expression but like that we're choosing from a very limited palette before we yeah. even know it which is something that i'm sort of you know i try to incorporate these rather more maverick outsider thinkers with as best i can conventional well not conventional when, when you talk about michelle foucault but with academic thinkers sort of in, in this case post-structuralists who would invite you to query and deconstruct the narratives that we take for granted most obviously in this day and age sort of like white colonial imperialist mm. narratives which are sort of now being queried but like Foucault would take it even deeper about the structure of power and the the dynamics between the powerful and the powerless and how sort of diffuse and odd that is so essentially where this is all leading Darren is do you want to do some hallucinogenic drugs <laughs> <laughs> is there something in the caches <laughs> They're laden with lysergic I was going to say, they're quite, quite zesty, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> quite zingy. Strap in, Darren. <laughs> We're off. I hope you've kept some of them hypnotic skills because I'm a very nervous traveller. But that process you've spoken about is exactly um, the human process, isn't it? We mentioned Jung earlier on. But, um, Jung said the greatest burden a child bears is the unlived life of its parents. So from an early age, we are taking on board a load of messages that we receive and we're too young to question about basically messages that come down to you are powerless and the world is powerful this is this is your relation as a small being to this big world this is what it wants from you and then we grow up um with that in place uh a kind of a skewed compass and then we we make things fit that and we so the you know the same the same problems repeat themselves in our relationships because we're actually just without realizing we're doing it looking for what feels uh, familiar or we get addicted to certain things or obsess over things or avoid uh, certain things you know and it's this, it's obviously what jung was very keen on was that we integrate all of these uh the the the, the self is something that's whole and integrated because when we try and shut off aspects of ourselves they become these unconscious the shadow is either the parts of us that are uncomfortable but it's the it's the unconscious parts of us that own us of course and uh the goal of uh i think certainly jungian therapy but i think generally therapy is to is to not necessarily grab a cure but it's to um have a more meaningful dialogue with the self and all those different aspects of the of, of the self and not just try and shut them off so you're you're aiming for sort of a, a consciousness but it's the a consciousness of these things that are otherwise unconscious parts of yourself that um need to be brought into the mix and and honored which is why the the greeks with their gods i mean they did it so well that they didn't really believe that these gods were god in the way that we think of god nowadays they were um they were aspects aspects of the self essentially that needed honoring so you would honor the goddess of whatever the god of you know creativity or eros because if you didn't that bit's going to come back and bite you which is what happens in the self you know the uh, the um the tv evangelist who rages against 
homosexuality and then gets caught in bed with a Ren boy sometime later and his, you know, his career's over. Same thing, just shutting off one aspect of his personality. Turns out I was and... a bit gay during that and <laughs> I overreacted. Yeah, that's mm. right. Um, and it, it's the same it, thing. It's, it's the narratives. We're living by those narratives. But it's just exactly what you were saying, but just internally. Sometimes, yeah. yes, I, mm. I completely agree. It's, in fact, easier to observe, oh, the narrative of Christianity is not fitting in with my experience, and then you one evolves your own narrative that incorporates uh, uh, incorporates our understanding of who we really are in relation to Christianity and what we reject. But it is still a narrative that we've constructed that will similarly have blind spots in it. Will similar, like, so, you know, of course, none of us know of what our unconscious mind is constituted yeah. by by its Virtually very the fact it's unconscious yeah. <laughs> it's pretty yeah. yeah difficult to incorporate so uh, what, what does it mean to you now what does what does christianity mean to you now what's what's your um uh, as an interesting and grown-up and thoughtful person what's your interesting and grown-up thoughtful version of of a religious belief that maybe you know well like very different uh, from because else? christianity like encompasses so many texts beyond its central canon the mm. old and New Testament. I'm fascinated to uh, fascinated by the contributors such as Augustine and uh, Aquinas, and also like I've ha when I have conversations with clerics, I try to see where are you at with this story. You know, I find literalism quite difficult to take because by its nature, it's limiting. So when I think of the figure of Christ I approach it as like you know I have no problem with the idea that God may have come to earth in human form but I'm I don't quite know how to deal with that in 2019 other than the potential like that perhaps God is awareness perhaps the very phenomena of being a person that can experience having a body having a mind having senses feeling emotions is uh is a connection to God and that if we could somehow embody this, if we could somehow incend, ascend, if we can die on the cross to the flesh self and be reborn as the person that lives moment to moment in awareness and awakeness. And I like you because obviously if you're interested in Jung, it's likely you're interested in sort of, and I see here in the notes, uh, archetypes and myth and perennialism. Uh, one of these guys I've been doing, I do like a lot of, I meditate as much as I can and I've been meditating with this uh, on YouTube with this guy Muji, like you know, just listen to his videos. I mean, M O O J I. Well, well, good meditations they are, and he's very good at getting you quite quickly to acknowledge you've not got anything to do. He's sort of got a West Indian, I think, accent. You got, you got nothing to do. You're not trying to achieve anything, and you're not trying to get away from anywhere. Just experience your awareness. Mm. Experience your awareness. And then he sort of seems to time very well. Okay, now it's natural to have thoughts that neither push those thoughts away nor follow them. And he, over the course of these meditations that I've been listening to, establishes it, it has established in me this idea of, oh, I see. I see that mm. my awareness is separate from every single belief about myself. There was one where he said, you are not just a vessel for concepts. Like, you know, yeah, like yeah. you know, like for the concept, I am a man, I yeah. am English, I like this, I don't like that. You know, like, you know, you are, beyond, you are 
I mean, if all these concepts are being put in there, there there is some space that they're being put into. Yes. And he, the, through this practice, which, again, the reason I mentioned perennialism is there is some consistency. Every type of meditation I've ever done uh, as a paradigm, you know, whether it's transcendental meditation or the stuff I've done with um, Andy Puddicombe's thing, Headspace, they're all ultimately start saying to you, but who is the witness? But who yes. is the observer? Yeah. You know, and well, the, mo- the moment you go... <clears throat> I am having these feelings, then there has to be, there's something having those feelings. So the feelings are not you, they're something you have, and that gives you a bit of space and leverage, I find, to um, uh, to sort of take a breath and not be overwhelmed by whatever the feelings happen to be, because they're just things that you're having, so therefore they'll come and go. Yes, yes, and this again, like, you know, Rumi talked about that, which pertains to one of the things we talked about earlier, like, you know, like, I am a guest house, you know, come in anxiety, come yeah. in jealousy. You might want to revise your guest policy. At this case. <laughs> but like, uh, like you know, the suggestion that we are in, uh, somehow being inhabited by these humours, and again, like you have said about the Greek gods, you know, ice, or like a genius like Shakespeare, like, uh, I see that Queen Mab hath been with you, she is the fairy's midwife, mm. not Ah, these entities, these energies, we are temporarily occupied by them, but we are not them. And as I, you know, I'm consciously, I'm raising children at the moment. And when Mm. I'm talking to a two-year-old, I'm sort of aware of how much is wrapped up in syntax and the language that I'm giving her. I'm like, you know, because they're so new and she's just learning language. I do like, I'd already told myself, don't teach her to say things like, I am angry. Mm. (laughs) Try to teach her to sort of recognize that temporarily she is feeling anger. But like, frankly, she doesn't have enough grammatic complexity yet to... (laughs) It is. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not, if she doesn't crack it in another week, I'm going to get another one. (laughs) That's what I I promised myself, a very clever child. I'm not going to yield on that, Darren. Was was the, um, was, uh, I don't know what the timeline is, but in terms of you kind of, uh, embracing uh, that and that belief and a belief in God was that part of that was that part and parcel of a twelve step program? Did it predate it, or was it all? Is it all kind of part of the same thing? I guess it, it, at some level it is. In a sense, yeah, I yeah. can trace a, a, a line, as it were, because like part of it was uh, like like you as a kid, I was always playing on my own. So this sense of hmm, who is this in here that's always present? Who's feeling these things? Mm. And then like you know when I was. Be- came a drug addict and part of that was like sort of recreational hallucinogens and stuff and experiencing hold on i'm still here but i know that russell is not real and i know that none of our constructs are real and i know that the dimension of the sensory realm is but a limited frequency because i am beginning to experience these frequencies then i wasn't allowed to take no more drugs because i was overreacting to them and Mm. overdoing them so i had to stop but then through meditation and yoga not so dense and immediate or as vivid, but in a rather more sort of subtle and gentle way, I began to experience it. And I've been doing these breath techniques recently as well. And through them, like experiencing altered states of consciousness, but Mm. where the observer, the witness is still present. Mm. And somehow to me, these states are connected to ideas such as love and kindness and oneness which which i sort of you know again i'm making these connections but it sort of is, resonates with stuff i've read in sort of c.s lewis i'm sure you're for mm. when he writes in mere christianity that when we talk about morality which i think any atheist would be fine with like 
when we talk about morality, it's a sort of an inborn sense that oh, don't do that. That's out of order. Yeah. And like, you know, so, and from again, someone might say, no, that's evolutionary psychology and reciprocal altruism. And, all that. and from, for me, this is just a deliberate sort of <laughs> like demystifying. And yeah. no, we did that because back in the tribe, if you help someone, they might give you a coconut in a couple of months. Like I feel like, <laughs> well, why? <laughs> don't go out of your way to say people are arseholes. You know, we've got enough of that in the Old Testament. Like, you know, the, the sins of the father will be visited on the like these uh, narrative templates are whether they're presented atheistically or theologically have either you can be optimistic about human beings we are beautiful and we will succeed and we love one another or you can say no humans are just wankers you know mm. and I can't or take it can be both. that or it can be both can't it it's right, like yeah. free will or not free will you can actually say you can have both and yes. one is a language that's useful for understanding the situation from one aspect and another is uh, useful for understanding it from another perspective but again it's that thing of ambivalence and ambiguity being okay oh, both can be true right. it doesn't have to be one or the other do you meditate then i don't why no, i don't and what i've never you done any... when you're telling people to clear off and leave you alone have a good meditate i, just, I read a lot there, there's the stoic form of meditation pre-meditation uh, which is just taking a couple of minutes to think about the day ahead I've, i do that now rather than you know go on my phone first thing in the morning Good. and check Twitter. Why won't you so do a nice start. meditation? I think... Uh, I'm already being evangelical. You've said yeah, how much well, you're no, irritated no, by religion. I, I, I think because my personally, I've never, I've always felt like I'm a bit of a stranger to anxiety and stress, mm. which I may not be, but because of that, I've not for myself felt that I've needed it. I've certainly sort of tried it because it feels similar to self-hypnosis and so on. Oh, um, yeah, but like my partner, for example, is a bit more, has more of a kind of stress thing that's more a thing in his life. So I've I've definitely like recommended it to him and suggested he do it. Why don't do we do it, it together? So, or do it together. I think we find a way together. of arguing, I think, during... You're not <laughs> doing it properly. <laughs> yeah. um, it's a very beautiful thing. It's and very beautiful and very useful and very sensible, I think. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'd like to know what would happen to your mind if you did it. I'd like to know what your experiences were. Mm. I'd probably just. And find is it. that not motivation? I've never mind. Probably, Darren, half a mind to trap you here. But so I've been getting because like, I suppose it's me. I need I've, a wee at some point. <laughs> you do that before it <laughs> or during, if necessary. <laughs> I remember the very first time I met you, as a matter of fact, which uh, was prior to the time I went round your house, you went round my house. There was this time where I was at the Soho Theatre and you were in there. I'd just done a show, it was like a sort of 150 seat uh, room. So, he's all, so it was a while ago, let me, <laughs> let me tell you. So, um, like, and uh, I remember I see you in a table, like sat down, I was quite excited to see you. And I was like, oh, it's Darren Brown. I didn't, like we sat on the table next year and I didn't want to trouble you. But then I think like someone needed a chair or something. Mm. And uh, like I took a chair from one, you know how you have to go, your men are go, do you need this chair? Mm. I don't mm. think I did that properly when I went and got this chair. I think you asked me to get the chair maybe. And I thought, oh, fucking Darren Brown, is Darren Brown me all over this bar? I'm <laughs> getting chairs. I remember it caused some sort of kerfuffle. But, hey, that's my chair. And I went, hold on a minute. I don't remember doing this. What's going on? I don't remember on? that it's Darren all. Brown. <laughs> I don't remember that at all. That's how I used to use my powers back in the day. Just really. getting people yeah. to shuffle furniture Yeah, just around. to shuffle up a bit so I could... <laughs> yeah. I remember seeing you at my show because you'd stand out a Cambridge Circus. It was Cambridge Circus because mm. you're quite tall and distinctive. And I remember that being it really throwing me for most of the show, trying not to, trying not to look. I was really concerned that at some point I was going to be like, and, and now, Russell, you will come up here and you will take down your trousers and yes. pants and do this little dance. <laughs> oh, shit. Now I'm doing a dance. It was bad enough when I had to move that chair. <laughs> See, I, I kind of 
I feel I can disappear quite easily. Whereas I remember Stephen Fry talking about this, just saying because he's quite so you know he's tall and he's you kind of mm. can't miss him, and so he's had to kind of just embrace that a lot more in terms of being recognised and so on. And again, when I've seen you with people that come up and want to say hello, you're so brilliant and present. And um, is it a? I guess that has just had, just you've just had to make that part of. Is it different now you've moved out of London? By the way, is that a, yeah? Is it's it, posh around here. No one cares. No one cares. And like, like which is you know, it's all right. But you were very good in the kitchen with my wife and her friends. You seem like sort of quite garrulous. I sometimes feel like that these sort of, you know, whether or not it's a sort of a high-minded cultural or historical uh, ideology that we're imposing on ourselves, or a sort of a parochial local individual belief, mm. like I am shy, that in a sense we can, you know, you like. Couldn't I was you faking just... it with your wife. I didn't warm to her on any level. <laughs> <laughs> Destroyed me a second time. <laughs> but like you seem there. I thought, oh look here, you seem sprightly, spry, mm. warm. And at ease. Do you mm. do, have you ever used these tech? Because it's interesting. Say I'm mates with uh, Paul McKenna. I've not spoken to him for a long time actually, but he sort of transitioned from uh, like you know sort of stage hypnotist into the much more who's that dude? The NLP dude. Richard is Bandler. Scary. Yes. Richard Bandler. Yeah. Like NLP. You know yeah. because they, we're in the same wheelhouse. Once you're sort of saying you know, and I absolutely adore Tony Robbins, who seems to be able to just shoot lasers at you that turn mm. you into sort of positivity. Have you ever considered? that room I see I'm not that, that's where the shyness maybe kicks in I think I'm not um, you know going back to those narratives that we live by from a, mm. from a young age there are as I'm sure you know there are some big like sort of personality types and a, one big oh. thing is do you do you avoid stress or do you um, you move towards it is your do you move towards it to fix it which says Roughly speaking, what my partner tends to do, uh. he's great at sort of like stuff needs to be sorted out, is on it. I avoid it constantly. So the uh, that's great for a kind of tranquil life, but it's not very good for um, motivating a room of people and becoming a you know an international guru in, <laughs> in motivation. I'm very happy to. Um, I'm very happy if my you know if I got a clean day in the diary, my phone never goes. That's and I can just sit and read, and that's that's it. That's like a really happy day for me. So no, I just I'm not constitutionally. Uh, made to do it i get asked will you come and you know give a sales talk to our team on how they can sell things better or come and give some motivational <laughs> team buildership thing and i i i just i don't know what i'd say i i <laughs> you I should go a, and film it because i think it'd be quite good to hear your lethargic stoic <laughs> approach to sales well exactly and i think i know you know if you think about stuff also you just end up it's like you know politically i do i i you know, I guess I'm I'm kind of liberal and a bit lefty, but I kind of all I can see is well, that's part of the story. You know, you're left wing, or you they, well, you know, this thing of like the 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 right wing protects the group. I mean, they seem to me to be a bit like the baddies in some ways at the moment, but they're the right wing urges to protect the group, and that's really important because sometimes we are groupish creatures, and you protect the group, and but that can happen at the expense of weaker. Individuals. So then you've got the liberal urge, which is to protect those weaker individuals, which is really important, but that can happen at the expense of overall stability sometimes. Mm. So both sides are like, you know, part of the story. And if you take the nasty individuals out of it or people that you don't like, the the, the key thing where you find truth in humanity is in the dialogue between the sides, right? Not just in one side or the other. Yes. So how do you begin to ally yourself to any um, strong political motivations. I, I just don't, yeah. I never, I, you know, I just never settle down on any kind of, 
opinion or whatever that is, motivation with enough force to do anything about it because I'm quite happy just to go, oh, it's complex and, you know, difficult and there's no easy answers. And if there are, I certainly don't have them. You might be a bit enlightened in a very sort of uh, unassuming way, you know, because I've noticed a lot of people that are vibrating on a higher frequency, they tend not to get too worked up <laughs> about, <laughs> about sort of the mechanics uh, of uh, the materialistic world. You know, like sometimes I feel like, you know, you see some uh, glorious guru swathed in saffron, like hanging out with Bill Clinton or whatever. And, and I might think, well, can't use, you know, but look at the things that have happened and the complex, mm. you know, and I, I sense that, you know, like when I think about that, the sort of the spectrum of current, say, British political life or to a degree of American political life, the two sort of worlds I know, you know, a bit about, not much, I would have to say. Like I can strongly identify with people that feel that they've been cheated and swindled and mm. overlooked and ignored and are angry. And similarly, yeah. my my general sense is be compassionate and loving and yeah. forgive, you know. So, And also, though, that would, of course, have to extend to people... That you disagree with, otherwise, what is just a different type of tribal we did a, preservation? Did really, we did a really interesting um, experiment. I, th- I did the show Sacrifice, oh, uh, yes. which was on, uh, which is also on Netflix now. So it's the last uh, TV show that I did, and there's quite a lot. At the start of the show, there's this um, uh, audition day, and there's like a hundred people that, and I choose the guy I'm going to use. But we did a lot on that day, which never made the show. Um, and one of the things we did uh, was so that. The room is actually divided between people identify strongly left-wing and strongly right-wing. So we did some things. Could you get people to change their opinions and what would it take? Based on the idea that the cons- that the that um, one of the reasons why the conservatives, or at least right, right-wingers, tend to have Republicans, so tend to have an, evolution, an electoral advantage, is that they hit a lot of moral trigger points for us. And this is there's a great book called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan uh, Haidt that goes into this. Um, so uh, our feelings of... Because they're about protecting the group, so that taps into our instinct for things like preserving authority and uh, loyalty and um, uh, and so on. There's, there's, there's a bunch of sort of moral triggers that they tap into, whereas the liberal... Um, urge is mainly about compassion. That's sort of one note that tends to get hit. Um, and because generally like re- Republican and right-wing rhetoric tends to hit a lot more like moral notes, they tend to have a bit of an electoral advantage and they get voted in more. However, so the point of this experiment is um, by priming people with um, different uh, with these sort of instincts, could you get them to change their socio-political views? So if you're protecting the group, which is the right-wing instinct, you're very sensitive to threat, right? Threat to the group. Um, and so the first experiment we did was we flashed up loads and loads of images. Everyone's wired up to these clever things that can read their, you know, micro this and sweating and so on. And um, sure enough, every time we... F- I mean, it sounds silly, but you flash up a picture of a puppy or a kitten or something that makes you, would make you feel compassionate, all the left-wingers fire up, right? They physiologically fire up. Nothing really happens on the right-wing side. When it's pictures of witches and ghosts and monsters and aliens, all the right-wingers... Uh, yeah, because it's stealing threat. our jobs. It's threat, right? <laughs> so that was, like, interesting, and it sort of uh, was exactly what the research said would, would happen. So then we did... Um, this experiment which is also part of uh, written up in Jonathan Haidt's book, which is where the idea came from. Of so, if you take your right wingers 
who's if if the basic idea is one of 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 threat that's kind of what they're predisposed to feel right is a, a, they're more um more prone to feeling threat from outside what if you made them feel invincible so uh i just got them to imagine uh a uh, that they had a superpower that meant that you know they wouldn't they wouldn't they couldn't they were impervious to harm and just you got to, to imagine it or you hypnotize no, them no hypnosis it? literally just i'm reading a script they close their eyes all of you just imagine this and now fill out the questionnaire and the questionnaire is asking for their socio-political views they've answered these same questions before worded a bit differently so it's not obvious they're repeated oh, cool. but we've got their answers from before and now we look at their answers after that five minute priming exercise to feel imaginatively less less threat right to feel invincible and their answers are more left-wing. We did the opposite thing with the left-wingers by um, inducing disgust, uh, which is another kind of this part. Which is why all this, you know, there's a racist rhetoric and so on. Historically, has always been tied in with rats, language. Yeah, rats, dirt, and so on, vermin, parasite, um, swarm. So we literally had fake sick on the floors. They came in. There was rubbish and crap everywhere. The room stunk. Uh, we were <sighs> apologising, saying there'd been an accident before, but we had to do this really quickly. So ignore the smell. Sorry. They come in, I give them a brief visualisation about what happens to the body after you die and how it decomposes. <laughs> and then they fill out the same questions and they give much more right-wing answers. And it was really... Enough it, to, for them to cross camps. Yeah, uh, well, pretty much, yeah, absolutely. They're giving... They're, they're, it's a big difference. It's a big difference. So the interesting thing hear. there is our, we like to think that our you know, religious, uh, our political convictions are rationally come by, that we weigh up the issues, we weigh up the... Um, mm. Yeah, but they're not. They're these gut instincts that we have to things like threat and disgust and so on which uh, which color everything else and the rational mind follows afterwards so if you create a cultural environment that's predicated on fear and disgust and you're not good enough mm. you know like it's a, that's a considerable enticement to move in the direction of conservatism to the point where even what is in the current rhetoric regarded as the left wing i mean one of the sort of challenges i have is when people go you know left wing sort of when you talk about american politics say uh, like you know our left wing media conspiracy i think they're not bloody left wing. They're supposed to, like they sponsor global corporations. Corporations. <laughs> they take all their funding. They're not talking about dissolution or like serious taxation. Like there's a no. There is no serious left wing. And I would say that's because there's the environment is sort of sustaining, and that's why you know that sustaining a state of borderline disgust continually, sort mm. of topping that up. I mean, you know, obviously that's a very a uh, beautiful example that you've given, very sort of precise and observable. But I feel like, you know, we can't, what do I want to say, exclude what, uh, you know, our cultural experience, if there could ever be such a thing as a shared cultural experience. But I'm, I'm talking about mainstream media, m m cities and towns in the UK and across America, and the sort of like our sort of shared sense of what's happening in the world now. How high is fear in the mix right mm. now today for most people? High. Mm. How you know how much are people worrying about the sort of the boundaries are being broken down? There's not a great deal of optimism, and that surely the bias of that is mm. going to be based on what you've just told me, one would imagine that the results might be sort of... Yeah, well, that, that is one thing that when I look at both of those sides, although I sort of try and weigh them up and think, well, look, they're both valid, it's hard not to see, well, that side is is about fear and threat. The other side is about compassion. And it's hard not to go, 
well, there's a kind of a nice, there's a nicer side there. I mean, but but it does come down again. So it's such an important point. It's the dialogue between the two because they both yeah. keep each other in check. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis, synthesis. is the way I've yeah. had that described. And evidently, you have as well. I suppose, like you know, I, I feel like you're going to give the options. Yeah. So we, that's can we not build our systems based on compassion and kindness? And the immediate fear that emerges is, yeah, but not everyone's going to do it. So who's going to guard the boundaries, boundaries and boundaries of our compassionate little enclaves? <laughs> Men with guns <laughs> comes yeah. the answer. Yeah, yeah, it's hard, and that's it's always it's always what you see. There's there's the the fear of the outsider, the fear of the you know the threat coming in from the from the outside is a is all about the importance of protecting the group, um, and that's really all it is. It just tends to show itself in in horrible ways, particularly if you are predisposed at a gut level to feel compassion for weaker individuals or disenfranchised people because they're always they're going to suffer in that when the when the um mm. but it's, you know it's the same again like what interests me always is the internal life really more than more than that so yes it's the same thing do you have a dialogue with the sides of yourself that you feel threatened by or do you you know do, do you do you try and integrate them and have that dialogue or do you shut them out and uh, pretend they don't exist belatedly in my own life i've like the reason i do brazilian jiu-jitsu now is because i recognized that i'd got gone oh i'm not ever going to go in that room <laughs> i'm scared of it mayor <laughs> right. and then like i said well hold on a minute if you're going to become a father and you're going to individuate and incorporate yeah. that you can't like otherwise i've just got this sort of, sort of uh, fizzing sense of rage that's underwritten by kind of dreadful fear of impotence and now because i'm regularly beaten to a pulp by, by uh, martial arts experts somehow that's lessening has yeah. it been a useful thing is it yeah very much certainly it? psychologically yeah. i would say primarily psychologically i'm certainly yeah. no better at jujitsu no i'm much mm. better at jujitsu than i was but it's taught me a lot of things one like you know um humility because even though i'm learning all of these things there are still people like you're continually fighting people that are more advanced than you that jujitsu is interesting because it's sort of like wrestling and grappling mm. not punching in the face you can spar it to a relatively intense level particularly with people that are about your own ability people that are better tend to give you a little bit of freedom and take on a role of educator and is it is one a... of those martial arts where you're always working with the sort of energy the person's giving you and deflecting and moving with them rather than like uh, coming up against it. My is it feeling is is that most martial arts have to acknowledge those principles, but the thing yeah. that sort of mostly defines it is the sort of proximity. And for me, that was a very interesting thing to be yeah. sort of so close to men, getting sat on, squashed, choked, armbarred, all this stuff. <laughs> Sign men me up. <laughs> <laughs> He's embracing his sexuality Ooh. now, baby. <laughs> like, a, like, a, it's, uh, go on, get down here. <laughs> like, um, it was, yeah, like it's a, like stubble and smell, and like it's sort of, you know, it's very visceral but also very sort of loving because the way it's sort of practiced is you know you tap to submit so there's sort of so much trust there if you sort of go right like the other person yeah. stops <laughs> choking you immediately so there's a sort of a complicity in it i i love it it's sort of yeah. it's earthing me and yeah. helping me to sort of embody an, an aspect of myself that i'd neglected and my only relationship with my, with my body really i didn't like doing sports school or any of that sort of mm. stuff my relationship with my body was my 
sexuality and pro- primarily yeah. for a quite promiscuous period of a, a decade or whatever and then now I'm you know in a, a monogamous faithful mm. marriage so I've got to like learn what to do, yeah, <laughs> to do with all that do. energy <laughs> it's got to go somewhere it's mostly going into the arms of uh, a <laughs> jiu-jitsu instructor I don't mean in any fluid form no. just to be clear <laughs> just in terms of the, the raw killer jewels <laughs> yeah and this is I think certainly one of the longest um, Oh, God, sorry. One of the most rewarding. Ooh. You've certainly eaten more snacks than any eaten, other person. I've eaten our combined body weights in grapes and cashews, but they're very nice. When it's I think nice some of the people who've had near, like uh, Yuval Noah Harari or Dear Al Gore, they never so much as <laughs> been touch a grape. Really? Probably out of suspicion. They've probably got too much of I that. A cake. I had a cake made by uh, Charlotte, your wife's friend. Yeah, I know. Look at you. I mean, you sort of, you've abundantly consumed calories. Mm. I've loved it. I also think uh, we talked about personal stuff probably more than I can remember talking about. It felt very sort of like, you know, certainly I did, and it felt like it had that kind of level. So, but I've also greatly some, enjoyed this. Have you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, me too. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, but I was uh, just checking the wonderful research done by Django. Uh, I've not asked why are you the patron of a parrot zoo, and it seems negligent not to ask that. Um, Particularly if you are the patron of a parrot I, zoo. I, I had the patron, we ask this to everyone. Patron saint. I like. I um. I have a little parrot. I've always had. I've always had little parrots. Oh. And I got asked to. Uh, it's kind of the extent of my charitable activities. I do parents, um, but I do. Uh, I, I yeah. It's it's uh, it's called the what's it called now? The Lincolnshire Wildlife Trust. It's up near Skegness. Um, and they in Boston is the sort of area, um, not Boston in America, mm. Boston up there, and it's uh, it's a, can I tell you a brief parrot story oh, that yeah, the guy told me. Moment, so right. he, um, so Steve that runs it, part of his job is going out to uh, the homes of people who have parrots because they live for a long time, right? The big macaws they live for like you know eighty, ninety, like a long time, but they can get a bit aggressive or whatever in their later years so often people have to get rid of them so he ends up taking on a lot of people's parrots so he always goes to see if there's a problem that can be solved first so he went to this elderly couple's house and um he ends up sitting with the husband let's call him dave or the wife is in the in the kitchen and he says why why do you feel like you've got to get rid of this bird it was an african gray that was in the hallway and dave said well you know i i i I love the bird a lot, but I think Doris, my wife, is starting to kind of... I think you know, her mental health's not what it was, and if I've got to look after them both, it's going to be difficult. And while he's talking, the wife comes in with a cup of tea and gives it, there you go, Dave, and goes out. And he's like, that is the like seventh cup of tea she's brought me in the last half hour? I can't be looking after them both, so I think the parrot's going to have to go. <laughs> so Steve, my friend, is like, okay, well, that's... Okay, that's... Yeah, I understand that. And he wanders into the kitchen to talk to the wife. Ask her the same question. How does she feel about it? And, you know, why does she want to get rid of the bird? And she says, well, you know, I'd love to keep the bird. But um, I think Dave, my husband, is becoming a bit of a handful. And while she's talking, Dave calls out from the other room. I'll stick the kettle on, Doris. And she's like, God, that is, that's what, the eighth cup of tea? Like he's asked for the last half an hour? I can't be looking after them both. So um, she makes another cup of tea. And she says, I can't look after them both. It's just going to get too difficult. So we've got to get rid of the bird. And Steve's like, right, feels really caught in the middle now of this dynamic between the two. Leaves the kitchen, walks past the bird in the hallway, and as he walks past, the bird calls out in the husband's voice, stick the kettle on, Doris. <laughs> so, <laughs> not only, it's true, it's absolutely true. Not only could he tell them they could keep the parrot, but he could also tell them they didn't both have Alzheimer's, which is what they were worried about. God, that's so, a, what a great visit by Steve. Yeah. Well beyond his remit as the man who runs well a beyond, parrot yeah. sanctuary. Oh, that's it's great. Well, isn't it? I'm yeah. so glad that I asked. There you go. 
brilliant because the parrot was the problem, the but in the... a tangential yeah. way that yeah. could be resolved. It was doing what parrots do. Yeah. Tell you what, that's, it's good that that's uh, again another testimony to your sleight of hand skills that a story that the punchline of which is parrots mimicking human voices. I yeah. didn't see that coming. No. So no. That's pretty good, isn't it? That feels like that feels like a, an up ending to our conversation. It is as yeah. well. It's like a really upbeat. Dave and Doris are going to be fine. The parrot stays. You're the patron of a parrot. Everything's all... going to be fine. We've got nothing to <laughs> worry about. Life is good. Ah, oh, phew. Thanks, Darren. Thank you for having me. What a joy. Cheers, it's mate. Been lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode with the lovely Darren Brown. Remember, let me know what you thought about it on Instagram. Tag me at True Russell Brand. Tweet me at Rust Rockets with the hashtag under the skin. Next week, our first episode on Luminary is Byron Katie. So you've got to get over there and sign up. Go to russellbrand.com to get free months for free on Luminary. Uh, the way you do that is, yeah, just get on my mailing list. You'll get sent a code. If you're in the US go to or Canada, go to luminary.link forward slash Russell. Two S's and two L's in Russell, if you didn't know. All right? Because some people think it's spelled R-U-S-L-E, R-U-S-T-L-E, R-U-S-S-E. I mean, just it's two S's, two L's. Russell. All right? Remember, my book Mentors is out on audiobook. It's great. Uh, it's lovely. It's me talking about the people that have influenced me, whether that's my BJJ instructor, Chris Clear, or early people in recovery like Chip Summers, or uh, Amma, the Indian hugging saint. Just how to choose mentors to spark up and strike up energy systems within yourself. Get yourself going, baby. Um, in the meantime, have a listen back to some previous episodes. Jordan Peterson, Gabor Matei, Alistair McGrath, Jason Hickel. All that's going to be available on Luminary. Please subscribe, share it around, and look at Rebirth on Netflix. Over the next few weeks, we've got some fantastic guests coming up. We've got Ben Stiller, Karamo, Jonathan Van Ness. We're having some Queer Eye specials, man. Who else have we got? Um, Byron Katie, she's next week. Who else? David Lynch is coming on under the skin. I mean, that's going to be a fantastic conversation. So get yourself on Luminary. Sign up for the free months for free by getting on the russellbrand.com mailing list. Or if you're in the US and Canada, go to luminary.link forward slash Russell. Two S's, two L's. We love you. Under the skin. Ta-ta.